Well, welcome to our special Glasgow Film Festival edition of the Cinetopia podcast. Um, Glasgow Film Festival is a happening um, from February 26th to March 8th. Um, I've been the last, um, well, this will be my third year, and uh, it's really wonderful. For, if you live in Edinburgh, it's right across, um, you know, not too far away, and an absolutely amazing international festival. We also, as part of our podcast team, have someone who's worked on the festival, uh, Carice. Uh, you worked on the industry team, correct? Yeah, so I worked, um, I I worked on the industry team uh, the last two years. Unfortunately, the first year that I had the opportunity to work with them, the Beast from the East happened, All right, I and remember. the entire industry program basically didn't go ahead bar one great panel with um women in film and tv um because the women fought through the snow to to have their panel um yeah it's a great festival to work for the festival team's quite small though a little bit bigger this year but it's a it's a few hands put together quite an impressively broad-reaching festival uh there's always really exciting immersive events so uh so this year they've got a whole dystopian theme um to their retrospective strand um so they've got blade runner showing stalker strange days and they'll all be showing in um the same venue uh so throughout the festival that space will have you know i imagine dark lit lots of blue light um they're always really great at kind of dressing those spaces and bringing in extra little special activities things to kind of uh enhance the experience for cinema goers the program's obviously great they've got proxima opening this year um how to build a girl is the the closing gala uh which i myself am very excited about i'm not sure if i'm gonna get a ticket but um i'm hoping to be able to pull in a favor at last minute uh catlin moran who's the author of the book the film is based on um is going to be there and she's just great um so yes it's a great festival i really enjoy it yeah, I too missed a few of those industry um, events the first time, but the second time got to a few and really enjoy um, the Film Hub Exhibition Day as well. Um, so I'm going to try to make as many industry events this time as well. Uh, they work with a lot of partners that are Glasgow-based as well, like um, Film City Futures. I, I'm going to try to make as many of the industry events. Um, I, I really enjoy the Film Hub Day that they that, that they run and um, make it to as many films as possible as well. So we are actually going to review three films um, that are f it going Going to be in the uh, Glasgow Film Festival this year. Jim, which ones are they? Yeah, so we're going to review um, three films. Uh, some have been, a couple of them been on the festival, well actually they've all been on the festival circuit quite a bit and we're, we're cheating with one because it's also playing at the Edinburgh Iranian Festival, um, so it's kind of serving double duty on our festival previews here. They're going to be uh, Bakurau, uh, Sun Mother and True History of the Kelly Gang. So we'll take a look at each of them. I think it's quite a good range of the different types of features that are playing at the festival, some smaller features, and then another one which is quite large and will actually be coming out in theatres very soon as well. Okay, so the first film we're going to review is Baccarat, which is playing at the film festival uh, right at the start of March, so kind of about halfway through the festival. So it's coming out a little bit later in March. Uh, I think it's coming to some theatres, but it mainly it will be available on Mubi, who are, of course, the UK distributor for this. So the feature is uh, set in Brazil, and basically we open with uh, our main character, or at least our main character for the opening stretch, Teresa, coming back to her hometown uh, which is a small village essentially um, in eastern Brazil and there's a little bit of a dispute going on with the local authorities about access to water uh, when we see her she's coming into town in in the cab of a water tanker 
and basically it, the, the town isn't in the best state um, and there seems to be some slightly weird goings on uh, which of course increased throughout the first half of the film it's going to be a very hard film for us to talk about without spoilers we're going to do our best uh, to try and avoid them now I've not seen any of the director's other work um, but as I understand it this is maybe a slight departure from what he has done before but basically we then find ourselves in town and these odd happenings increase and within the opening stretches of the film we've already got a scenario whereby you can now no longer find the town on a map for instance or at least not a digital map the old school maps of it but you can't find it in satellite imagery or anything like that and you know then we end up with two supposed tourists coming into town who then behave a little bit weirdly i'll leave it there um purely because there is a lot to unpack in this film mark maybe if you come in first and just give us your general impression of the film and what you would want somebody to know going in because we've kind of got to balance what we say with what we don't say here about this film i would just want to say i love this movie so much um clever mendonza i feel who is one of my probably I mean, he's only got three features to date this being one of them and he's already emerging as one of my favorite directors um neighboring sounds is filmed from 2012 as a sort of fantastic ensemble of a a, a small neighbor a small street suburb in recife in brazil and his most recent film before this is an exquisite piece of work called aquarius which would recommend it is on um, netflix uk if you're interested it stars sonia braga uh, who is also in this film she plays a character called dominguez who is the um who's the rather uh, invective doctor um with a bit of a temper uh, I'd, uh reasons for loving this are just are so varied because it's such a varied movie um when you begin um the there are some very straightforward adumbrations that we need to take into account as they're driving this water cooler through the, um, as uh, as Jim mentioned, the eastern Brazilian Sertão, the the outback, the back country, um, there are some strewn coffins on the road, which I don't know. That's, that's not always the most cheery sign. Um, before that, we see a dead body on the road too. And when they make it to the village, the first one of the first things that happens is that her uh, Teresa, played by um, Barbara Colen, uh, her suitcase is taken from her. Um, and passed around a crowd of people in a very crowded house in just a really strange and beautiful um, w uh, kind of moving way. You don't quite understand why it's moving yet. Her suitcase is opened up and some important uh, contents are taken out and distributed among the among the inhabitants. Um, we realize that she's coming back to the house for a week for her grandmother, uh, who's an important figure in the town. And what emerges from that first setup and then all throughout the film is just a really deeply beautiful sense of communitarian ethos, a communitarian spirit. There's a moment later on in the film, which I think demonstrates that perfectly, which is the um, uh, the son of the matriarch, the son of, um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's actually Teresa's father, um, speaks to somebody who's uh, asking why they don't use the church as much anymore and his answer is quite simple he says uh, if uh, what makes you happy makes us happy and that's an ethos which runs through the entirety of the film uh, when it's concerned with the village it's a very varied and diverse community that they have there are sex workers work there just um, you know uninhibitedly um, there's there are trans characters nobody seems to have much in the way of beef that they can't just squash immediately with a, a wee conversation um, yeah, I think this is a beautiful movie are you as enthused but bewildered by this film as me and Mark both seem to be 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm the same as you, Jim. Um, this is the um, this is my introduction um, to the director um, and his film work. Uh, I loved it. Sort of um, things that you've mentioned so far in terms of these coffins that are just strewn about anywhere. Um, there's this great um, sort of DJ news presenter, almost like hype man that's there constantly. That's a really sort of interesting aspect of it, whereby news is spread around the community through him you know speaking through a speaker that's sitting in the back of his car or maybe there's um the a couple of folk who live just outside the town who as they see strangers or, or something odd someone coming in they'll send a little voice note and that spreads around the town so something kind of i don't necessarily know what that does like why it's great but it just it creates a real sense of a unique space a really unique point in time it, the film from what i gather is meant to be sort of set a little bit in the future um i don't know how necessary that is i guess there are there's technology involved that perhaps is why they feel the need to sort of establish that but otherwise it could kind of really be whenever wherever yeah so i i also love this film um i mean it is batshit i mean let's not let's not beat around the bush here it is a supremely strange film but what i liked about it is it's one of these films where i didn't really feel like it was being weird for weird's sake i do feel like there is something behind each of these elements in particular, so we're introduced at first to obviously the cit the citizens of Bakurau, right, the town. But now some reviews have gone into kind of explicitly where the film goes from here. I'm not going to do that because I think it would be quite good to go in, you know, reasonably fresh. But needless to say, there is a set of characters introduced who are not local. They're, they are from outside Brazil, I think they're a mix of nationalities, but primarily American, who then begin to serve as our antagonists. And it's very interesting the way the character dynamics work with them in terms of how we observe the interactions that Mark has spoken about with the citizens of Bacurau and how it's kind of, you know, quite harmonious or at least kind of, you know, it's very, you know, everybody gets along compared to the interactions of these antagonist characters. And both in terms of just the way that these characters carry themselves and the way that they interact with the citizens, because needless to say they do end up interacting with them in not particularly wholesome ways, let's say, um, and basically, there's this film accelerates into, you know, quite quite high levels of violence. I think again, I, I, it's very hard to talk about this without explicit spoilers. But I think it's it's fair to say there are antagonists and there is violence involved. And I think the different things that are woven into this story with those characters and why they're there, the way they interact with one another, and even kind of the tools and props that they use to go about uh you know their purposes within the story it's really interesting and i think there is a lot there i feel like i saw this film several days ago and i feel like i'm still unpicking it uh and it's really going to benefit from a second viewing it's worth saying that the the cast are absolutely superb um on the antagonist side there's udo kier who kind of like plays a german who is heading up this group of people absolutely superb um as you might expect and the reason i'm saying that you know it's an antagonist group is not a spoiler is generally his presence in a film is rarely a um rarely an announcement of you know some sort of warm fuzzy uh result heading the film's way so i was wondering what how you found um 
the characters because I, I I find them absolutely superb. You could find it a little bit uh, caricaturish, but I didn't. And I'd even argue that even if you did, I think that actually kind of serves the purpose of this film. It's a very amped up film. It's not a naturalistic one by any stretch of the imagination. And for me, it really got me involved and hooked into what was happening on screen. Uh, Yeah, in terms of the characters for the um, townspeople, I think, you know, there's not a huge amount of backstory given to a lot of the characters and it is like a really big sort of ensemble like mark said it's a community um and i think the the most successful thing that's done amongst those characters is building that sense of community and that sense of connection so there's not really that individualism and and there are a few sort of standout moments for some of the characters so um like dominga um who we mentioned earlier who um is probably one of the more eccentric people within the town uh and the character lunga who um at the beginning of the film is actually not present but they they sort of reach out to him and and bring him in towards the uh, latter half of the film they really sort of stand out as being almost useful sort of tools in how the story is going to play play out um but the you know the moments in the beginning the the characters themselves they all sort of they move as one the the scene we mentioned of the suitcase being put, put, passed around they're all standing there quite close and packed in and they they all hang out in that town um together and it 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 sort of does something to to create that that sense that you maybe get in um Oliver Stone's U-turn um where a sort of a stranger comes to town and that town is sort of odd and offbeat and uncanny and but they're they all kind of share a sense of they know each other and they can almost communicate without having to say anything um so i mean i I really appreciate the 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 community um ensemble cast and that and, and that community ethos is actually mirrored in the narrative of the movie as well and in point of view because um there isn't although bar although um teresa is kind of our identification character for the most part um she's not in it for all that much in the film we do shift a lot around a lot and that speaks to that thing about this the community that matters more than any one person in it um although there are and i want to i want to single out a few of them because they're so joyous um there's a kind of bard who's always plucking on the (laughs) on his on his electric guitar um and then uh, when two tourists come to visit kind of improvising some dog roll for them which is just delightful um and I think I, I think we should also talk about the way in which the film, as in the director's film, I should say this is co-directed. It's not just Kleber Mendonça Filho, it's Juliano Dornels, who was a production designer in the previous two movies. And his, um, I think his debut single, solo debut feature is upcoming soon. This film was inevitably going to be seen as a film of, in reaction to the election of Jair Bolsonaro. Um, not that the director's other two films to date haven't been extremely engaged and political they are but they were just markedly for different periods whereas this one even though it was in development before bolsonaro was elected it's definitely going to be seen as a a reaction to that yeah there's definitely there's definitely a distrust of authority figures in this film there's a there's a mayor character who's treated with quite high levels of disdain johnny m who's a really repellent creature he um i think you should distrust anyone that comes with um a a truck with their a video on repeat of them just standing looking swift um yeah he's he's dispatched rather brilliantly by the um just the (laughs) increasing volume of uh 
of the the noise against them. Um, I would say that um, a couple of references are kind of embedded in the film in very entertaining ways. The school is named Jao Carpentiero because uh, you'll also notice John Carpenter's score in the in the background here. The um, the music is obviously heavily indebted to Carpenter because it lifts from one of his movies called Night. Um, also, just want to talk about the simple pleasure of the editing in this because I love the editing in this. Um, there are a lot of those lovely little dissolves and lot like lap dissolves, which are my favorite thing in film. I think so. Uh, there's that. I was on, I was on, I actually the, the the editing the way the film's put together. I actually kind of got a graphic novel feel from it almost like in terms of it because there's a lot of the the transitions between scenes are invariably particularly as the film progresses that they're, they're screen wipes you know it wipes from top to bottom or side to side and then there was at least one um you know split diopter shot is kind of you know some you know uh, vehicles rumble into town and i think that really worked quite beautifully with the rather insane levels of violence that this film actually gets to um and i think it worked really well with the the stuff we've spoken about about the way the people interact and the tone i think it was pitched absolutely perfectly because you could find this film very strange indeed i do find it very strange but the way that it's put together and the way that it's shot and edited i think actually works really quite beautifully with that as the thing we were mentioning earlier about the tone change um it's kind of beautifully announced by the very instant that Udo Kier walks through the door. You think, oh shit, it's changing now. <laughs> he's, he's not going to join in the happy community vibes here. Okay, well, I, I think we'll leave it there for Baccarat. I think that's a very healthy recommendation from us. So as far as I'm aware, I think it's playing at the Glasgow Film Festival on the 3rd and the 5th of March. Uh, and then it will be coming to some cinemas. I think it's getting a reasonably limited release on the 13th of March. But on the same day, as we said, it will be available on Mubi. So if you have a subscription to that, you'll be able to see it. But also they do a free trial. So good excuse to break open that free trial if you haven't already. Okay, so the the next film we're going to talk about, which is playing at the Glasgow Film Festival, and is also coming out in cinemas very shortly after, and has been on the festival circuit, is uh, True History of the Kelly Gang. Now, this is basically, it's based on a Peter Carey book about the life of kind of infamous Australian outlaw Ned Kelly. And it basically follows his life through three different segments, which have been delineated uh, Boy, which follows his life as a child, um, with his mother in Australia, obviously, and his mother is Irish, his father is Irish, and their interactions with kind of the local colonial authorities. The second segment is Man, where he's now a grown man and is becoming the the man, the myth, the infamous legend, if you like, Ned Kelly. And then the final section, Monitor, which leads up to his quite well-known final stand against the authorities when he was finally kind of brought to justice, I suppose, is maybe the way you'd put it. Um, Ned Kelly's played by George Mackay, who of course has been in quite a lot of things in the past few years, but I think 1917 is probably what most people will probably know him for now, even though he has been in quite a lot of things recently. Um, so this is screening at the festival on the 27th and the 28th, and the 28th is in fact the day it comes out in cinemas nationwide. Um, it's directed by Justin Kurzel, uh, who has directed a few things before, Snowtown, which I've not seen, but the features that I have seen are Macbeth. He did an adaptation of that, which I was actually rather keen on. I seem to be in a minority on that one, uh, but I was quite quite taken with it. 
the follow-up to that was a video game adaptation, Assassin's Creed, which was a bit underwhelming. I don't think it's as bad as it was made out, but it's not particularly great either. So this is kind of his return to home turf. Uh, Justin Carzel is Australian, and he's gone for a very stylized approach to this, I think. Carice, you're the other person in the studio who's seen this besides me. What did you make of the film and how they've approached this? I've not read the book, so I don't know how it works as an adaptation, but how did you find it as the story of Ned Kelly? Yeah, I mean, this is my sort of first learning of Ned Kelly as a character. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a film that, tonally speaking, seems to sort of range from horrible to ghastly, which, which for a viewer is fairly relentless um it doesn't really let up it doesn't really give much time to consider what it is that's being told and what it is we're meant to be feeling and where we're meant to be sort of positioning ourselves as viewers um i guess the things i do like um are so obviously boy being the first chapter um ned kelly is initially played by a young actor called orlando schwert um, who I think is significantly better as an actor than George Mackay, but I am, um, you know, no secrets in my dislike for George Mackay as an actor. I'm sure he's a lovely man. Um, uh, so, yeah, so Orlando Schwert playing um, Ned Kelly as a young boy, and that's throughout the whole of Act One. I think Act One's probably the best bit of the film for me. Um, you know, you start to get an idea of the world that this boy is living in. Uh, daily struggles that he and his family have to go through but as it shifts into the rest of the film I feel like that young Ned Kelly character even though he's very quickly corrupted is sort of left behind as the only uh, like pure or um, good thing in the film and I'm not one that thinks that films need to have you know moral binaries that we're you know these are the good guys and these are the bad guys but in this film, it, it doesn't do that. It feels like everyone is just bad. And I don't really know wh- who I meant, if I'm meant to be feeling sorry for anyone. And I think this, the point I particularly kind of came to this feeling is in the epilogue of the film, the voiceover narration of George Mackay as, as Ned Kelly um, is talking, addressing his, his son. And he says to his son something along the lines of, remember, you are a Kelly and you were loved. And... I don't really know what your Kelly is meant to make us feel. Like all of the Kelly characters are pretty awful. I mean, Essie Davis as the mum is probably the only one we can maybe feel sorry for, but I guess I don't really want to sort of feel sorry for her. I want to feel like she does something great. She has some strength, but actually she's equally kind of part of the problem and makes some quite dubious moral choices involving her family. And I guess also Kate, who's Ned Kelly's sister, is also quite innocent, but perhaps like too much so. I feel like she doesn't, she's almost created as like a bit of a um, idiot character almost. Like she doesn't say anything. She's just kind of like used as a prop between these two. There's certainly very little agency in that character. Yeah, um, and there's something to the fact that they don't, when so Nicholas Holt, who's introduced partway through the film um, as uh, Ned Kelly's uh, counterpoint, makes sort of advances to to Ned Kelly's young sister, and she doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't really get a say in this. She's spoken to, but she doesn't really answer. And yeah, so go back to my initial point. I don't really know what 
you're a Kelly is meant to mean and what that's meant to make us feel. And the fact that you are loved, I think, is is a lie because we don't know really know what happened to the child. He definitely isn't brought into a world that has much love in it. Um, and I definitely found myself just at the end of the film thinking, what was I meant to get from that as something that's a new adaptation and a new creation of, a, of an old story, you'd like to think that it's deliberately bringing something relevant to the point in time that we're in or just kind of relevant to human nature, something new to be said about human nature. And I, I don't really feel like it does that. I think I'd kind of agree with that. I think I, I think I perhaps got more out of it than it sounds like you did. But the issue is that, that I can point to any one thing in this film and find something to it. I think... There's connecting segments that are visually very interesting. I think the the finale of the film is shot in a very interesting way, and that that, that and if I'm being perfectly honest, this is also what I liked about Curzel's Macbeth. Uh, it had a lot of issues, but there were certain visual elements that I kind of really, really liked. There are here as well. The problem is when you bring all these things together. And there are a lot of good things, like um, so. I don't, I don't have the same sort of like dislike for George Mackay as an actor. I think he does an okay job here. I think he he does reasonably well. The, all the characters around him, I think, fulfill their roles very well. Um, I think Nicholas Holt kind of gets the bulk of the antagonistic running time. We are introduced to Charlie Hunnam in the first section, um, who's doing a similar sort of thing, and they all do very good jobs. I think. But the problem is it doesn't really coalesce into much. Um, and there's there's actually a little bit of overlap with Macbeth, really, in the sense that this idea of, kind of like the, the, a man doing reprehensible things and kind of what the motivations are. And this is where I think some of the stuff you said about the culpability of his mother comes in, because she, she's almost, for bits of it, kind of like a little bit like a Lady Macbeth-type figure to me. So it almost feels like there's some overlap, but it's not really seeing much of a huge amount of interest, if I'm being honest. There are plenty of segments I can point to and say, visually, I find that really interesting. I find that really engaging, but I don't know what I was trying to say with it. And in particular, the second and third segments, in terms of a narrative structure and the progression of it, I mean, I don't think it really hung together at all. Yeah, I found myself quite confused by the world that I was in as well as to the the distance between one spot and another spot because you're for a lot of it your um the setting is this sort of wooden house in the middle of the Australian outback that the um Kelly family live in and then due to various reasons Ned Kelly sort of separated from his family um and that time span is about 10 years I think until he returns to his family and you you're introduced to that second section with him in a room that Nicholas Holt is also in. And then he very, for no particularly well-explained reason, George Mackay decides to return back to his family. And in my head, I felt like those were two very different worlds, two very different spaces, both geographically and kind of practically speaking, he was maybe making a choice to sort of step away from that world. And then all of a sudden, Nicholas Holt is is there within the space of the the family home and i'm i'm that sort of led me to be a bit confused as to has he been just sort of down the i mean i know that nowhere's really down the road in australia like it's a you know it's a massive kind of vast nation but 
Is he just kind of been down the road for a little bit, just killing time wrestling in a room of, of Australian, or so not Australian, British, English gentry, and then for no particular reason has decided that he'll he'll return to the family home. So I got a little bit confused there as to the sort of the time and the motivations and the, the geography of it. And I think that's a bit of a shame because I, I don't know how you feel about it, but the, the first segment, the first segment with him as a child, I actually think works rather well. Um, I find very little fault with that segment, to be honest. I find that the most interesting bit, so much so that I will even forgive it for giving me Les Mis flashbacks when Russell Crowe starts singing at one point. Because, um, of course, Russell Crowe, is, he's only in that segment. It's a very, it's a very short uh, role he's playing a Harry Power who's kind of like a local you know person of local infamy who basically ends up owning Ned Kelly effectively the the young boy and you you start to see the influence that that character has on this child and that to me was the most interesting segment of the film the problem is when we then jump to adult George Mackay I feel like we've skipped quite a lot of beats and quite a lot of interesting beats at that and at that point, I do wonder if there's a little bit of assumed knowledge going on. Because this is my introduction to Ned... I mean, I, I know of the name Ned Kelly, right? Because it's one of these names that pops up. But I knew, and probably still know, very little about the story of his life. So I am wondering if there's a certain amount of assumed knowledge there. Um, in particular, I understand like the final stand that we see, that's kind of like a very noted incident. So it's more a case of I don't I don't feel like it's telling a story very well. That's the thing. There's a lot of kind of like interesting visuals, but even then it gets a little bit muddy. There's a lot of kind of I think it's snorry cam, you know, when you attach it in front of someone's face and it follows them around in this kind of like very hectic uh way. That's used more than once. Um and I don't feel it particularly adds much. It's almost like it's meant to be hinting to the idea of kind of like the the Ned Kelly losing his grip on what's happening and him kind of spiraling a bit but it doesn't do that particularly well that's the key thing i don't think it's a particularly well told story there's interesting visuals i think there's some good acting here but it's not a very well told story and in that regard i then start to look back at justin Curzel's other films the reason that macbeth worked quite well for me was the fact that it was an adaptation of macbeth you then look to something like Assassin's Creed, which, of course, is a very different type of film, but barely coherent. And I'm not really finding a lot to latch on to in this, the last two segments of this film, which I think is a shame, because the first one, I think, really had some potential there. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the, the stuff that's introduced in the, in the first act, they basically... That happens, so you've got the... Um... You know the the sort of steel house, I guess, that that Russell Crowe kind of hides out in. That's completely bulletproof. That's brought back in a very like obvious of a way. Um, you've got the line from Russell Crowe where he says that every man's got to write his own story. Don't leave it up to the English to tell it. They'll only f it up and steal the proceeds, um, which is obviously quite a. Um, which is obviously quite a, a sort of on-the-nose line of, you know, you've got English money and you've got English actors in this film, so are they sort of trying to kind of point a finger, poke fun at themselves and that? But all of these things are very then brought back in the second and third act in very kind of obvious ways that don't have the same um, panache as the um, the first act. 
there's a lot of emphasis put on kind of like the lack of empathy and the brutality of kind of the colonial authorities um you know and obviously as you said that's kind of driven through a lot of you know act english actors with plummy accents compared to sort of like invariably people with irish accents uh, elsewhere but in terms of dealing with the brutality of kind of the colonial authorities and the oppression of people at that time in Australia. Another film that we reviewed on the show a while ago actually probably does this quite a bit better, and it was The, the Nightingale, uh, directed by Jennifer Kent. It's it's quite a brutal film, and I think when we reviewed it, me and Amanda were both of the opinion that it's, it's maybe to its detriment quite how brutal it is. But in terms of the quality of the filmmaking, the quality of the storytelling, I think it does some of the stuff that this is actually looking to do quite a bit better. Okay, so the last film we're going to review, uh, Mark and myself have seen it. It is Sun Mother, an Iranian film. Mark, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the film and sex scene? Sure. So it's directed by Manaz Mohammadi, and it's about a woman called Layla, who's played by Raha Kodiar, and she works um, very helpfully. Um, because otherwise you'd be a bit confused as to what her profession actually entails. There's a scene later on in the film in which the signage just comes up very, very explicitly that she works in an, an industrial wire factory. Thank you very much for the clarification. Um, there's, I'll say this film wastes absolutely no time getting into the emotional trap it's set for its main character, which is a brutal one. Um, she's a widow. Um, she has two children, one of whom is called Amir. He's played by Mahan Nasiri. Um, he's a boy of, I want to say, about nine or ten, and they have a young. she has a younger daughter. While she's working at the factory, the factory is under sanctions currently and looks as though it might close, so it's starting to lay people off. She, for reasons I've got suggestions about but I'm not absolutely clear on, is sort of kept on despite her being late almost every day because she refuses to take a bus ride from the bus driver, whose name is Kazim, it's played by Reza Boudi. And um, he is a widower who's proposing marriage to her constantly. Um, and she begins to weigh up the proposition in her mind. Um, unfortunately, the proposition comes with a bit of a caveat. The caveat being, he, is, he has a young daughter and um, step-siblings, if they're of different sexes can't live in the same house together and that's what sort of drives the conflict from there yeah and i think really i i would heartily recommend this film i really got very deeply involved with it i'm gonna i'm gonna just take one issue with the, the opening shot is literally a pile of wires being taken out of a facility i know, no, I know but i was also <laughs> okay so it's definitely a wire factor but anyway that's fine, that, that, that's, that's besides the point true. but you're completely right about the fact it wastes absolutely no time in getting into the crux of the matter. I think pretty much straight after that shot, we're straight into um, the her superior's office and setting the scene for the fact that she's in financial difficulty. She's having difficulty keeping up with kind of her responsibilities both at home and at work. And really, I thought it was absolutely superb. I think the central performance as Layla is really, really well done. Um, I think what's also interesting about the film is Again, without giving too much away, there is a there is a change of character focus in the film, right? So obviously, we see kind of her wrestling with this choice of whether to... Because basically, it's the cost of security over keeping her family together. Mm. And obviously, the dynamics develop as to 
what is informing her decision there. And then we focus a little bit more on the sun in the second half of the film. And I think what's quite remarkable about it is it it completes that transition very well. And also the the sun really doesn't it doesn't have any dialogue. Um, you know, I, or it's very minimal, like it's very, very sparse. And really, it, it, that's another superb performance. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it balances those two whilst try, keeping a coherent kind of thread about the, the cost of these sacrifices that are made and the impact it has, whilst also giving a little bit of a glimpse into some of the difficulties that you can maybe have in Iranian society as a single mother. I think it's all dealt with extremely well. I think it's done quite naturalistically for mm-hmm. the most part. There is one brief scene when we're in the the sun school where the, the editing becomes a lot faster and a lot more dynamic and it's very brief but it makes quite an impact and that speaks to i think how well and how precisely it is put together before then mm-hmm. in terms of the way that the characters are framed and shot and the pacing of the film i think it does a superb job and it does that without a huge amount of histrionics um you know the thing is we're looking at this story of basically a family being ripped apart almost almost as one is kind of being joined together as well it's a, it's a strange mix and it would lend itself to a very impassioned emotional style that's not the style of this film yeah and it's worth saying to the cinematography is almost exclusively in like gray pallor um and you just looking from a frame you could tell exactly the emotional tenor of the people who live within those frames um that they're kind of they're level-headed when they should be furious and every every thing which is thrown at them is a complete injustice but they take it as they look wearied i mean they always look wearied but they're also they have just enough resilience to try and pass on which should become insurmountable as the film goes on because the um the stuff they have to put up with is quite ridiculous there's an interesting almost metafictional aspect to this too because um if you want a a way in which this film specifically kind of reinforces the way in which women are uh, subjugated in iranian society is the fact that she's wearing a hijab indoors which iranian women do not do the hijab's only for um, hijab or the shador which she wears in the film they're only things you wear in public so the fact that they're indoors and it's essentially a, a point of iranian censorship that if a woman is on screen she must be covered um and so the the film is sort of reflecting on that by having to um having to abide by those own laws i, I it actually makes an interesting contrast with another film i saw last year which i think a lot of people did it got a lot of press it was um capernaum and the thing is there is a segment which kind of if you've seen that film will remind you quite strongly of it because there is a segment where the the son has to fend for himself for a period uh you know without going into details that's basically what's happening and it's this idea kind of this child tooling around this uh middle eastern city kind of like you know doing what what he can but the contrast is really quite remarkable now i quite liked capernaum but it does it does rely a lot on other stylistic elements to evoke the empathy required for that child. What's remarkable in this film is it kind of does that in a very, I don't want to say mundane because that seems to like it has a pejorative meaning, but it, it, it's a very muted tone, right? Mm-hmm. It's presenting it as just something that's happening and that's what makes the impact. It's the fact that nobody's really batting an eyelid. That's what he has to do. And that kind of speaks 
the way it presents that speaks to the style of the whole film. It's very muted. It's very downbeat. It's almost quite depressive in a yeah. way. But that is central to the core of the film. There is no there, there is no catharsis here. There is no uplifting moment. But it is a wonderfully told story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably to do with some of its influences too because I think you can definitely sense... Um, it's not just helped by the fact that they look kind of similar, but the 400 blows, um, the wee boy does remind me a wee bit of Antoine de Manuel. Um, but there's also a Dardenne brothers feel to the film in the way that um, there's a scene where the um, young son is kind of tracking the bus driver and trying to catch up with him and confront him, which very much looks like a reversed um, following shot that the Dardennes do where they have someone follow someone down the street. The other point I wanted to make was about the, the way in which people try and help Layla, which is maybe one of the most depressing films and the, the things in the film, because the only people who try and help her are those who are in no position to do so, or if they're in a position to do so, can't do it well. Um, one kindly older gentleman tries to help her out, says that he'll look after her son so that they can get the marriage sorted and helpfully establish that family unit coherently so that he can go back and live with them. Um, he's in no place to do that. And the next door neighbor, the kind of uh, she's constantly spouting uh, an aphorism. She says, "As the prophet said," or "As the saying goes," and that's not necessarily a good, good life philosophy to live on. Um, she tries to help in a way, I think, sincerely, but just incompetently, and it just solidifies the tragedy. Yeah, I think um, I think we'd basically heartily recommend this film. There are multiple opportunities to catch it, um, so it is screening Glasgow Film Festival. If you're an Edinburgh resident and you can't make it through to Glasgow, it's also going to be showing at the Edinburgh Iranian Festival on March 6th, so you'll have the opportunity to catch it in Edinburgh as well. Well, that wraps our Glasgow Film Festival short for the Cinetopia podcast. Uh, two good f- reviews, one not so good, but if you like punky westerns with anachronistic characters, uh, that might be for you as well. Just a reminder, um, the Glasgow Film Festival runs from February 26th to March 8th. Um, there are so many films in that program, so be sure to pick up, look online or pick up a program if you find it and go check out the film festival as a whole. And we'll be back next month on EHFM. And if you'd like to follow us, uh, follow us at Cinetopia on Twitter, at Cinetopia Hub on Instagram and uh, CinetopiaShow.com. See you next time.